Hello, listeners. Buckle up for a new episode of Voiceover Work and Audiobook Sampler. Where do you listen? Today is June 17th, 2022. Nick Trenton's book, Anxiety is the Enemy, is a book that understands where you've been, the exhausting situation you put yourself into, and how you lose your mind in the trap of anxiety and stress. In this book, Nick will walk you through the obstacles with detailed and proven techniques to help you rewire your brain, control your thoughts, and change your mental habits. This is the chapter-by-chapter preview of Nick Trenton's new audiobook, Anxiety is the Enemy. Chapter 1. Your Anxiety Management Toolkit Whether stress is just an occasional occurrence for you, or you're battling a more entrenched anxiety disorder, there are, thankfully, countless scientifically proven methods for cultivating a calmer, happier, and more balanced life. We'll start this chapter with a few key strategies that will help you understand your anxiety so you can consciously take control. The first step is always to become aware of where we stand. Only then can we start to challenge our beliefs, put labels on our experiences, and start to pick apart the stress response as it plays out in our day-to-day lives. Let's dive in. 1. Label your emotions. When you're stuck in an anxiety spiral, it can be hard to even put a finger on what's happening to you. All you know is one thing. It feels bad. Your thoughts are racing all over the place, and you may even feel physically ill. It's like overthinking, worry, and anxiety are an overwhelming flood that completely washes over you, and you can't escape or defend yourself. Think about the last time you felt completely swamped with anxiety and overthinking. What did it feel like? If you find it difficult to find the right words to describe the intense feelings, then this following tip will help you. Dan Siegel is a professor at the UCLA School of Medicine and teaches people how to name it and tame it. According to Siegel, when we label our strong emotions, we create distance between us and them. Giving how we feel a name is one way we can almost step outside of that flood of anxiety rather than being swallowed up by it. It's a question of controlling your feelings or allowing yourself to be controlled by them or A handy way to think of it is, if you can see an emotion, you don't have to be an emotion. Psychological distance is the feeling of perspective we gain over ourselves. The thing is, when we're caught in an overthinking loop or anxious rumination, we lack awareness. We may feel a rush of strong negative emotions, but we lack perspective or the ability to say, I'm experiencing some anxiety right now. Much of our fear comes from our inbuilt fight-or-flight response instilled in us by evolution. Based in the amygdala of the brain, this reaction is completely unconscious, automatic, and physiological. To step out of this instinctual knee-jerk response, we need to pause long enough to realize that we are actually having that response in the first place. And this realization brings us into our higher brain, the prefrontal cortex. Clinical psychologist Dr. Mitch Ablett explains how strong emotions, like anxiety, can be like a hand held right in front of our faces, 
We're so fixated on that hand that we cannot see anything else in front of us. Simply acknowledging what's going on by giving a label your emotions, however, reminds you that this hand in front of your face wasn't always there and that it won't be there forever. When you do this, something special happens. You create a little gap in which you get to choose what you do next. Matthew Lieberman and colleagues published a paper in Psychological Science back in 2007 where they found that affect labeling, i.e. putting feelings into words, actually alters the brain. When Lieberman's test subjects underwent fMRI scans while experiencing strong emotions, simply labeling these emotions decreased activity in all the regions of the brain associated with emotional regulation, particularly... Chapter 2. An Anxiety-Free Lifestyle. 8. Limit Caffeine Intake. Now, you might not want to hear what comes next, but if you're consistently battling anxiety, caffeine could be the hidden culprit. Did you know that the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders used by the American Psychiatric Association, contains four separate disorders related to caffeine? Caffeine is the world's most commonly used psychoactive substance, but Dr. Julie Rodico is a clinical psychologist who reminds us that caffeine is not a problem per se. After all, it can boost concentration levels and give us a shot of energy. Not to mention it's delicious. But I encourage people to know healthy limits and consume it strategically because it is activating and can mimic or exacerbate the symptoms of anxiety. Because of the ubiquity of coffee in modern life, many of us, doctors included, simply never think of coffee as something that could be adding to our anxiety behind the scenes. So we valiantly plug away at mindfulness and do our breathing exercises, conveniently forgetting the four cups of espresso we had that morning. So how much is too much? Well, there is variation in individual tolerance levels. The standard advice is not to exceed 400 milligrams daily or risk overstimulation, anxiety, and a range of fun physical effects such as nausea, gastrointestinal distress, and heart palpitations. For perspective, a normal cup of coffee brewed at home contains around 100 milligrams of caffeine, but drinks sold in coffee shops and things like energy drinks or supplements can contain as much as 400 milligrams in one cup. Cola can contain about 30 to 50 milligrams per can, and even tea and decaffeinated coffee can add to your overall caffeine intake, so don't assume that you're in the clear just because you don't drink coffee. So, is the solution to quit caffeine cold turkey? Probably not. Unless you are extremely sensitive to it or are battling a pronounced anxiety disorder, it's more about moderation and drinking coffee strategically than it is about quitting completely. A 2007 study by Sergei Ferev in the Journal of Neurochemistry explains exactly why coffee has the effects it does. Caffeine blocks the neurotransmitter adenosine, which results in us feeling more alert, but the same process also triggers adrenaline release. This process is not dissimilar from the one that unfolds in the HPA axis during the fight-or-flight response. Beyond a certain point, in other words, alertness turns into anxiety. A 2018 study by Winston et al., in the journal Advances in Psychiatric Treatment found that a too high caffeine intake can actually mimic the symptoms of a range of psychiatric disorders, including anxiety. This is important 
It means that there are at least some people out there who have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder when the real story is that they're suffering from excessive caffeine intake. If this sounds like you, the solution is obvious. Before you consider behavioral or lifestyle change, and before you think about anti-anxiety medication or therapy, check to see that your morning cup of coffee is not to blame. Trying to stop abruptly may lead to caffeine withdrawal, which can be counterproductive. Instead, taper off gradually, find a comfortable dose that's right for you, and don't exceed it. 9. Schedule your worry time. Stress is a part of life, and we've already explored the power of acceptance and acknowledgement without resistance. If worrying has been a constant part of your life that it almost seems like a day job, maybe it's time to turn things around and be the boss. Chapter 3. Enter Your Mind No book on stress management and anxiety reduction would be complete without a section on meditation and mindfulness. In fact, meditation is rightly considered one of the best and most effective ways to regulate your stress response and access a more tranquil and controlled state of mind. However, don't worry if you've never really enjoyed formal meditation or feel like you may lack the time or wherewithal. The mindfulness techniques discussed in this chapter are easy and accessible and can be done anywhere, anytime, with very little practice. The great thing about them is how easily they can be combined with other strategies covered in this book. 14. Belly Breathing One excellent technique to start with is a deceptively simple one, belly breathing, also known as diaphragmatic breathing. Instead of breathing from the chest, belly breathing is about deeper, fuller breaths that originate from the diaphragm, which is a large, dome-shaped muscle in your abdomen. When you breathe in, the diaphragm tightens and moves down, creating more space in your lungs that draws air in. When you exhale, the diaphragm relaxes, and this contracts the lungs, expelling air out. This type of breathing encourages full oxygen exchange, which in turn slows the heartbeat and lowers blood pressure. All of this spells more relaxation of your entire body, less physiological arousal, and a more balanced stress response. The next time you're feeling ultra-stressed, pause and notice what your breath is doing. Often, we breathe incorrectly without even knowing we're doing it. Anxious breathing tends to be shallow and rapid. It's part of our fight-or-flight response. Even though we were all born with the knowledge of how to breathe deeply, watch how a baby breathes, we can learn bad habits as we grow up and favor smaller, tighter chest breathing. But if we relearn this skill, we give ourselves a tool to quickly relax our bodies via our breath. By slowing our breath, we slow our thoughts and bring ourselves into a more relaxed frame of mind. So, how do you do belly breathing? Thankfully, it's something anyone can learn to do, and it can be done anywhere, anytime. 1. Find a comfortable spot to sit or lie down, checking to see that you're not slouching or holding tension in your muscles. 2. Close your eyes, or if you're more practiced, keep them softly gazing in the middle distance. 3. Put one hand on your belly and the other on your chest. 4. Breathe normally and notice the movement of your hands with your body. Try to breathe deeply so that the hand on your belly is moving up and down more than the hand on your chest. 
Five, take more deep breaths, focusing on keeping the breath in your belly. Breathe in through your nose and imagine you're blowing yourself up like a balloon. Exhale slowly through the mouth, almost like you're whistling, but without sound. And that's it. When we're deeply relaxed, we tend to breathe like this anyway. But if we can pause during stressful moments and train ourselves to breathe like this on purpose, we encourage ourselves to relax and slow down. Shallow chest breathing is, unfortunately, the norm, but it is associated with tension, both muscular and psychological. Just practice shallow, quick breathing at the top of your lungs for a minute or so, and then notice what emotions you feel afterward. Belly breathing is a wonderful thing to do first thing in the morning. Almost as though... Chapter 4. The first step is seeing it. The thing about seeing it in visualization is that you're already an expert at it. When you stress and ruminate and worry, visualization is exactly what you're doing. You are creating distressing mental pictures that then cause an adverse reaction in your body. So why not use this ability your brain already possesses and put it to better use? In this chapter, we're looking at scientifically proven ways to use the power of your imagination to calm anxiety, gain psychological distance, and learn to exteriorize your experience. 20. Guided Imagery Guided imagery is a straightforward stress management tool that helps you relax. You simply imagine in vivid detail peaceful settings or situations. Right now, try to think of a super sour lemon in great detail. Imagine yourself biting into one. Do this for long enough and you'll start to salivate. It's the same with guided imagery. When it comes to stress and relaxation, your brain cannot tell the difference between imagined and real. So when you imagine peaceful things... Your body responds physically and releases feel-good hormones. This is why guided imagery has been associated with reduced stress and better relaxation. A study published in 2014 took women suffering from fibromyalgia and put them into two groups. One group did guided imagery exercises every day for 10 weeks, while the other group didn't. At the end of the 10-week period, the women who did the guided imagery reported significant drops in their pain, stress, fatigue, and depression levels. Another study did something similar, but compared the effects of guided imagery with those of clinical massage. The participants were patients in a progressive care unit. The results? 30 minutes of guided imagery had the same effect on the participants as 15 minutes of therapeutic massage. Guided imagery has also been shown to reduce pain, improve sleep quality, relieve fatigue, and improve depression. Practicing guided imagery is easy, and there are so many ways to do it. You can try it when you wake up, before you sleep, or as part of a yoga practice or meditation session. You can use an audio recording or app to help you, make your own recording, or be creative and guide yourself. Take a look at YouTube or download one of the countless apps now available. The general process goes as follows. Sit somewhere quiet and get comfortable. Close your eyes and relax your breathing. 
You could start with any breathing exercise you'd like or do a little stretching to loosen your muscles. Now, in your mind's eye, take the time to imagine a peaceful, relaxing place. Your imagination is the limit. You could visualize an epic and serene mountain range in the snow, a heavenly garden with a palace made of crystal at its center, or a cozy library with a warm, crackling fire in the corner. You could also think of a place from your memory. Now, don't rush. In as vivid detail as possible, imagine all the elements of this scene using all five senses. The smell of the sea breeze. The sound of children laughing. The sight of sunlight glittering through the tops of the trees. Don't forget to imagine how you feel in this place, too. What are you wearing? What are you doing and think? Chapter 5. Reframe and Shift. In our final chapter, we're taking a closer look at a few key shifts in attitude that can drastically alter your perspective and help you think differently about your anxiety. These are less well-known techniques, but they are nevertheless effective ways to turn anxiety on its head and see it from a completely different angle. Think of anxiety as nothing more than a spin on reality. You can just as easily change the narrative in another direction that makes you feel happier, more relaxed, and more confident in yourself. Let's look at how. 25. Accept your anxiety. Robert Frost, a poet, once wrote, The only way out is through. He could have been writing about anxiety. If you suffer from social anxieties, overthinking, or excessive stress and worry, your mindset may be something like, this is wrong, and I need to get rid of it. Maybe we imagine a silver bullet or some kind of overnight insight that will fix us forever. And given how difficult it can be to live with anxiety, it's not very satisfying to be told to just accept it. But a big part of how anxiety works is that it is a reinforcing chain reaction. Let's say you become aware of something that doesn't feel quite right. You focus in on it. You start to imagine worse things. You notice yourself focusing on those worse things, and then before you know it, you're spiraling out of control. However, if we approach ourselves and our anxiety with judgment and resistance, we end up adding even more links to this chain reaction. The irony is that desperately trying to escape problems is just another way to focus on them. It's a way we give ourselves another problem. The real way out of anxiety is not to push or pull, not to succumb to it or run screaming from it. It's simply to sit calmly with how you actually feel. People can mistakenly think that acceptance means we agree with what's happening or that we like it. We might think that acceptance means we take no responsibility for getting better. This isn't true. Acceptance just means we plainly acknowledge the fact of what is without struggle. It's this absence of struggle that gives us the freedom we want. And we can have that feeling of freedom even though we still occasionally suffer from anxiety. An attitude of acceptance tells us that it's not the end of the world to feel anxious. It's human to feel that way, and many other people do. There's nothing to be ashamed of. We're not weak, crazy, or failures because we're stressed or having a hard time. Thoughts are just thoughts. 
It's normal and perfectly okay to feel anxious or worried sometimes. It is not possible to be completely free of anxiety, but it is possible to learn to live a happy life with a certain degree of anxiety. This last one is important. Sometimes, if we expect that our treatment or self-improvement goals are met to perfection, it can inspire us to give up when we feel we've failed to meet these ideals, but our goals should not be perfection, absolute control, and 0% anxiety. Our goal is simply to be more accepting, tolerant, and compassionate about who we are, good and bad. That's why the best way to manage anxiety is not to push against it, run away, fight it, judge it, or avoid it, but to simply accept it. The more... Thanks for joining us today on VoiceOver Work, an audiobook sampler. If you enjoyed the episode, we would appreciate a rating or a review on whatever platform you find this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in three or four days.